0: Welcome to Digital Health Unplugged. I'm Andrea Downey, Senior Reporter at Digital Health. To kick off the new year, our podcast is getting a new look and we'll be publishing fortnightly. We'll still be hosting panel discussions with industry experts, bringing you insights into how some programmes within the NHS are working, but we will also be hosting briefings with our wonderful news team looking at some of the biggest stories of the month and what they mean for the digital health landscape. Joining us for our first podcast of 2020 are my colleagues, Hannah Crouch, Digital Health Editor. Hello. Hello. Owen Hughes, Senior Reporter for Digital Health. Hello. And John Hoaxmer, Digital Health Editor-in-Chief. Hi there. Now, you would have expected the last couple of weeks to be fairly quiet news-wise for us, as we all took off our time for Christmas. But that actually didn't turn out to be the case. A December election certainly kept the stories rolling in, and now Matt Hancock has kept his position as Health Secretary, he's renewed his commitment to technology, saying the government would double down on the tech agenda and bring the NHS into the 21st century. But that's not all that's been happening. One of our biggest stories from the last month was the news that several high-profile players from the NHS have secretly met with big tech and pharma companies to discuss how to potentially create a national patient database. That uh, the aim will eventually be to commercialise millions of medical records, which could be valued at up to ten billion pounds. The likes of NHS England's chief Simon Stevens, Sir Simon Stevens now, Sir Simon Stevens, that's right, (laughs) um, and NHSX chief Matthew Gould, as well as representatives from Amazon, Microsoft, and System C, were there. This has caused a fair bit of concern for some people. Uh, Joe McDonald, the director of the Great North Care Record, has warned that the NHS risks repeating the failures of the care.data problems if they were not transparent about these meetings, uh, which would ultimately jeopardize patient trust. John, you were around for the care.data. What are the similarities here and what's the main concerns with these meetings?
1: Um, I think, I think the, the sort of essentially it boils down to one word trust. And care.data. Um, was an initiative to create a national database um, of um, patient data, largely episodic um, and conditions rather than patient identifiable, but they simply lost the trust of the public. Um, I think there was all kinds of issues about whether um, they had a consent model that worked, I think implied consent until very late in the day was um, was the approach that was favoured, It was quite secretive and and it smacked of a fairly paternalistic view. Um, Nanny knows best, that might be very much in times of the zeitgeist of the current cabinet, Um, but um, I think that those themes appear to be kind of running through um, the latest kind of proposals. Uh, The um, NHS, um, England and um, NHS Parliament keen to stress that these are just proposals at the moment, but they're not just or proposals. that come from McKinsey we understand. Um, they were um, presented in front of a very high-powered kind of um, audience. Um, Doug Gurr of Amazon was one of those um, attending. So I think these aren't just a kite that's been kind of put up there I'd see what response. There's clearly ambition to do more to exploit the data assets of the NHS and I think most people would, would argue that that's a good thing um but i think many would also kind of um, suggest that's a good thing as long as it's done transparently
0: yeah and like coming back to the fact that we you know you're saying that we it's just preliminary discussions at the moment it has come from a number 10 round table discussion which kind of suggests that the government is really seriously thinking about doing this because it's not just sort of a few people meeting this has come from number 10
1: um well we we had a couple of kind of sources um that that story was kind of based on and um one of those um, stressed that um, there were a number of papers discussed, and this was just one of them. So somebody was downplaying it um, furiously. But I, I think, as you say, it was a very high-powered kind of um, audience. Um, it was pretty secretive. And I think the thing that really kind of riled um, a lot of folks in the space was that um, a lot of readers of um, digital health and members of the networks um, are leading on regional record-sharing initiatives and um, regional kind of data um, um, you know, initiatives. And they were completely blindsided by this. They had no idea this was going on. So in terms of this kind of being informed by and involving folks that are actually kind of um, working on on these types of data sharing initiatives currently, um, it does seem like it's all happening um, over there rather than sort of being based on consultation and involving those dealing with these issues.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think for me, the whole fact that it was held behind closed doors, secrecy never helps. And as you said, a lot of people were kept in the dark. And I think as soon as you kind of have those closed door discussions, there's no open consultation, that's when people's backs get up. You have things like the use of the word commercial, which is never a good word, either, I don't think, in terms of getting people's backs up. They're worried about their data, not just for people from our networks, but also members of the public um, who also probably remember care.data as well.
1: And, and sort of, you know, winning the trust of the public and, and carrying the dressing room, to use the football kind of um, um, you know phrase. Um, is vitally important. Going back to what was the experience of care.data, Data, I think one of the, the key things from that episode was that having lost public confidence um, by being appearing cavalier about who to have access and selling it to whoever kind of rolled up um, around the back um, door, um, they were never able to kind of regain that and, and kind of you know um, and kind of put trust back into that kind of um, that kind of project which ultimately is, is what killed it. So um, once again, I think, I think the power of data in health is huge for prediction, uh, for prevention, um, but unless you found it on consent um, and a public trust, um, you're gonna have an uphill struggle.
3: Yeah.
1: It strikes me that a, a lot of this kind of rests
3: on the ability to join up data from, you know, primary, secondary, social care, and I think that's what phase one of, was it, of the project was about. Um, and I feel like we're still quite a long way from that. So it's, it doesn't seem like something that's going to be coming to fruition anytime soon. I may be wrong. Um, and a lot of it will be based on the success of Leica programs. And from what we may have heard, there could be some changes in, coming in, t- in terms of how they're made, maybe not funded, but certainly implemented funding, um, the kind of
1: digital have-nots have instead of pumping all the investment into GDEs. I think the other thing that stood out for me Owen, on, on the papers that we saw from this was that there was a number of business models that were kind of set out and some of them were like kind of like the nunty farmer that shows up <laughs> at the market with a pig under his arm and you know he gets a bag of magic beans um, um, you know in, in for the, his um, prize kind of um, porking. Price pig, rather, sorry about that. Um, And then we've business models that said, basically, um, you know, you give us all your data and we'll share with you some Mm. of the benefits, but all those commercial benefits will go to kind of companies, yeah? So let's hope that um, whatever's planned, they're not going to sign up to any stupid kind of um, business models that are basically us handing over all of this valuable data and the NHS getting almost no benefit in return. Yeah,
0: because that was one of the things that was mentioned is they don't, like, it's it's costed at it ten billion pounds, but we don't really know how we're going to get that money in. Because one of the one of the suggestions is it's just going to be they're going to be handing over the data and the benefits we'll see are in innovation and sort of the delivery of how we you know provide care. But how do we get the money back from that? If we're handing over millions of patient records.
1: So I think that ten billion's really really questionable figure. So this comes from um, McKinsey, and I think McKinsey quoting another management consultancy. Um, I mean, I'm always skeptical of these kind of like large figures. That if you come back to them a few years later, everyone goes, "Oh well, that was just that was just kind of indicative." Yeah. Um, a lot of these kind of figures, I think, hang off um, the valuation that Flatiron Health got a couple of years back when mm. they um, were sold to Roche. Um, interesting. I saw the guy that kind of runs that um, that kind of um, division of Roche um, speaking last week at CES, and he was talking not about the value um, in dollar terms. But to Roche, the real value was that they are using the kind of data assets of of Flatiron Health and the technologies that came with that to actually predict which clinical trials are going to be successful when they're only halfway through. So for them, it's a very different kind of value proposition. It's about spending less money on clinical trials and being able to predict outcomes much, much earlier. So I think the idea that there is some big mountain of cash that you you can bank Um, is case unproven so far. Uh, But there are benefits, but many of them are kind of clinical and patient benefits of of different kinds. Mm. And I think Ernst & Young, was it
3: last year, quoted a very similar figure to that. It was things about 9.6 billion. Again, that was based on previous
1: deals between industry and data. I think there's no question that kind of like, um, that kind of um, patient data has has real value, including kind of um, financial value. But Again, some of, some of these figures, that get bandied around, I think are kind of based on the US, where health fraud is like a massive, massive issue. And kind of health data um, enables health fraud in a way that isn't directly analogous here in the UK. So I, I think more debate, we're certainly expecting to write a lot more on this, um, I'm sure, over the coming year. And um, let's hope that the data kind of analogies really don't prove to be true, because I'd hate for us to wind up Writing tons of stories about how a train wreck in use of kind of patient data um, gradually unfolds. Mm-hmm.
0: So obviously we can't talk about the biggest news stories lately and not mention the December election and everything that's happened afterwards. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Matt Hancock has kept his spot as health secretary and he's renewed his commitments to technology, uh, which I think we're all expecting anyway. He kind of does that every time he has a speech. Um, but in his first keynote address following the election, he mentioned uh, the Care Quality Commission would be like assessing how appropriately providers are using digital solutions, which they haven't done before. Um, And we also found out a little bit more about that and how it will work when he announced that he would be designing a model of excellence to inform every provider what they need to be doing to be outstanding in technology. Uh, We didn't actually say when that was going to happen. So it's a fairly new direction for the CQC to be taking. What do you think of the idea that CQC will be assessing the use of digital?
3: We've seen online providers being assessed by the CQC, I think, It was 2017, just before my time here. I think Lloyd's Pharmacy was the first one to pass the CQC inspection. And then before that, you had Pharmacy for You, which was found to be very inadequate. I think there were problems with um, patient identification and not being able to ensure that doctors were prescribing the same medication. So I would be interested to see how the criteria reflects that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to take that direction because they are already assessing online providers. Mm. They're assessing Babylon, they're assessing Bush Doctor, they're assessing everyone else that's online. It does make sense to be asking trusts and other providers to be at the same level that we expect digitally. But then there's the issue of, you know, some trusts have quite a lot of money and have the you know the means to provide the technology that we need and other trusts don't they're getting left behind. Mm. I mean, how is that even going to work?
2: Well, potentially, I think, to me, this is a huge change. I mean, it's another... Sort of inspection or expectorate level that NHS trusts have to abide by, along with you know care quality of care and those types of things, and it's another thing for them to worry about. And as you said, you know there is those the GDS that are further ahead. There are those trusts that are lagging behind that will have to do a lot of work to kind of get themselves up to an outstanding level. And there's the whole issue of how will it be measured? Will it be based on whether they have an EPR? Whether they have you know EOBs? And there's kind of a lot of questions to be answered. I think reliance on this model of excellence which we don't really have any any more information about. So I think there's still a lot of questions to be answered and a lot of kind of kinks that need to be ironed out before they start measuring them because I have a worry that it's going to be something that trusts will fear and they'll get concerned
0: about. Yeah, and if they are still going to be focusing on the ones at the top, like the GDE level sort of trusts, we're just there's, we're just going to have a bigger gap between the trusts that are capable of it and the trusts that aren't. Um, but then maybe this is sort of moving in the direction that Matthew Gould's been talking about for the last six months of helping out the have-nots rather than those that have all the things that they need. Um, but yeah, as I say, it's going to be really interesting to see the criteria that they follow. Also, okay. oh, sorry, <laughs> it's also going to be interesting to see when Matt Hancock actually publishes this model of excellence, mm. because until we have that, we you know CQC can't be doing what it's supposed to be doing. Um, so there's... You know, he hasn't announced a timeline on that, so it'll be interesting to see when
1: that comes through. I think kind of bringing digital into the kind of mainstream of kind of um, regulation and inspection um, probably makes sense, you know, rather than having it as something which is some sidebar kind of um, activity. Um, I do have some questions about kind of um, CQC's um, expertise and competency for competency mm-hmm. this. Um, certainly kind of feedback we've had from um, folks we speak to suggested that that's a question that a lot of people have. Yeah. Um, you know, It's a bit of a black box how CQC is going to do this, um, how they're going to go and inspect. Again, there isn't an impression that they're talking to an awful lot of people mm. at the moment about what an inspection regime should look like um, and how that should work. And then finally, just just on kind of, you know, I, I drive past my local hospital on a pretty regular basis um, in Kingston. And um, they have a big sort of banner outside going, you know, CQC inspection, best care regime in South London. I can't see too many banners going up going, best EPR use, but I look forward to that (laughs) day.
0: Well, they have sort of, in the last 12 months, taken a move towards more, you know, digital assessments, haven't they? Because they appointed their first executive level chief digital officer last January, I think. Um, We haven't actually seen a lot come out of them since then about what this guy's actually doing. Um, so I wonder if he's going to be brought into this whole assessment process. Um, so going back to the have-nots issue and like bringing the trust along that don't have the money, this digital aspirant program that Matt Hancock has announced um, looks like it's going to be helping those who really need the help to, to mm-hmm. step up in the next level in terms of the digital things that they're offering. Um, it sounds like it's almost a step down from the GDE program, but they're still going to be providing money. Um do you, is that going to work? I mean, we don't even know what, how much money they're going to be putting into it at this point, do we? It's been a very, very. it was under a radar announcement, wasn't it? It yeah. wasn't a big, big no. keynote.
2: No, I think, again, there's, there's more several questions that come out of it. You know, the criteria, Who? how do people, do they have to bid for it? You know, do they have to be at a certain standard for them to be able to qualify? There's still not a lot of information given. There's kind of been a lot of talk, uh, Matthew Gordon, a lot of his keynotes, says you know, they want to help those that are behind they don't just want to help those that are already excelling because it's probably a lot more easier so I do think in that aspect it's really good to kind of help those that kind of need that push and need that funding but again there's kind of that lack of clarity mm-hmm. in my opinion as to how trust can get around and actually did they
0: bid, are they sort of yeah. you know, um, referred or anything like that. At the risk of sounding extremely cynical this just sounds like what happens around an election campaign and what happens after you've been newly elected and it just it sounds like this wonderful promise that's going to change everything that works and i i would be surprised if we see a whole lot coming out of it anytime soon in all honesty because it does just sound like it was still on the election trail we have heard
3: it for had this quite some time haven't we we've heard that the gd program is great for kind of making um you know these exemplar trusts others to follow but then some trusts are so far behind in their digital kind of roadmap that there's no way they can kind of match what they're doing. So we've heard about changes to how trusts are funded um, to help these less mature trusts kind of excel, but how that's going to fit into the GD and Leica programs, I guess, is another matter. And
0: also just giving trust money to implement technology, I don't think that's going to help. You need to actually teach them what needs to be done. There needs to be some form of, like almost a learning module, if that makes sense. Not that they don't know what they're doing, but Mm. I imagine it's quite a difficult thing to go from not using a lot of technology to all of a sudden having these goals to meet. And if if the bar is set too high, I can imagine that it's going to be quite difficult for a lot of trust to meet.
1: But I think we just step back from this um, a second. I think you're quite right that there's been a steady kind of of, um, indications that they want to do something for... Greater number of trust that Armour has digitally advanced by whatever measure, if you kind of measure that on. And before the kind of election, there was some talk around some sort of foundational offer. Um, looks like that's been through some PR department and become the digital aspirant. Not aspirants, I misspelled it the other day. <laughs> um, but if, if you think about the other bits of it, it's all a bit mushy and confusing at the moment. So we were expecting there to be further rounds of G. Um, so fast yeah. followers, and the whole idea was that there'd be some cascade of knowledge going from one wave to the next with fast followers. Um, that looks like it's kind of um, now on hold um, and doesn't look like there's going to be any further continuation of the GDE program, which comes to its end in 2020, the, the initial mm. funding. Lycra's, who knows? Lycra's, which were always a bit confusing about what were they trying to be, um, and, and the answer really was too many things. Um, doesn't look like um, there's going to be a further wave of Lycras anytime time soon. Um, NHS England certainly being, and NHSX have been backing away from lycras, mm-hmm. saying that some sort of um, other model um, is needed. So if you've got the two main pillars, which was GDEs and Lycras, um, now uncertain, mm-hmm. some new concept around um, aspirants, which we're still trying to puzzle out, um, it, it all is very confusing, mm-hmm. and and then I think the big thing which really matters in this is money. So I know we're going to come on to it in a second, and we've only just seen a lick of money go into um, NHS Login, and
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, forty million, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, we've had Hancock um, imposed for kind of eighteen months, and despite kind of regular predictions, he's about mm-hmm. to disappear somewhere else. Um, and this is the first new money that he's um, he actually kind of announced for NHS IT. So for all his digital enthusiasms, mm. which you know, are, are commendably tiggerishly kind of um, consistent, um, new money has been kind of you know, noticeable by its absence. If they're really kind of serious about moving forward, they're going to have to find new money. I think mm. that's, that's the big test for the yeah. coming year. So
0: at the risk of boring everyone with politics, the other big story, as you mentioned, John, was the £40 million investment for the NHS login times. Um, so some staff are logging into as many as 15 different systems every day, which is a huge waste of their time. Um, systems are like, often quite overcomplicated. you need to remember different login details, you might have to use different systems when treating the same patient. So it's understandably something that needs to be fixed. But is £40 million pounds enough to do that and I, like, how are they going to – the money's great, but what are they actually going to be doing with
1: it? Uh, yeah, okay. So, I mean, £40 million – log-in. so, login is a kind of bug bear, But but what do they mean by login? Do they mean about um, having single login across multiple systems? Is it about login times um, because systems are slow? Um, and I think these are the types of questions that we've seen um, on the networks forum. a lot of CIs and CIs have been questioning, um, you know, what, what is this really about? It's eye-catching but, um, you know, is it a substitute for kind of proper investment locally in infrastructure? Um, is it kind of, um, is it an alternative to investment in modern um, clinical kind of software? Mm-hmm. So I think many people would welcome it. but. The idea that it's a magic bullet that's going to solve all kind of um, frustrations, um, I think, is unlikely. It is um, for those those kind of listeners with a long memory, one of the CCIO seven that um, Simon Eccles kind of um, first kind of um, unveiled oh, all about two years ago. So just ahead of um, NHSX, and I think one of the things I'm interested in is. Are we going to see further announcements on some of those other ccio seven areas, or is that all being merged in some future policy that we that we yet to see?
0: Yeah, I mean something that I thought of was if you're giving if you're improving login technology, but the systems on the computers that you're using are still really slow. Like you might give them a better way of logging in, but if the computer's still going to take 15 minutes to boot up, like what what is the point in that money? Is you sort of need to be focusing on the stuff that needs to come first,
1: really, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I think any new money um, is kind of welcome. And this, this is kind of certainly presented that way. Um, and um, it would be unfair then to kind of bracket this with um, past um, wheezes that we've had, like axe the facts and, um, and purge the pager. Um, <laughs> and it just looking, but they do share some lineage, I feel. Yeah?
2: Yeah, for me I don't think £40 million doesn't really seem enough mm. to kind of, in, like you said, if they're trying to uh, complete change or, you know, our a whole infrastructure, you know, that's going to need more than £40 million, Yeah, I would guess. I mean, it's a system overhaul, isn't
0: it? Yeah. And it doesn't seem like £40 million is going to cover it all.
3: Yeah. It seems like a lot of money, but in an NHS land we know that it's kind of very stretched. Yeah. I wonder if it's going to be a good business for companies like Improvata who provide all these solutions or mm. if it's going to be something else entirely.
1: Well, I think VMWare is the other obvious one. That's sure. It's yeah. Like they're gonna, um, other it's supplies are available. <laughs> other <laughs> flavors are available. Yeah. I think the other one, which kind of made me a little bit cynical about this one, is um, I think the timing on this um, came out on was it second of January? Yes. Yeah. Which um, is um, as readers will no, know. I think it was the third. It was the third. Yeah, it came three. out in a news um, golf where it was likely to be kind of uh, picked up. Um, I think like, let's let's. Optimistically, treat it as the first of a whole series of announcements coming. There are certainly some kind of um, suggestions that have reached us that there's going to be um, further kind of funding um, announcements made and that it was the election in Perth that held things up. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's hope that's the case.
0: Yeah, I think they also need to sort of give us more information on how the money is going to be split and where it's going to be like who can apply for it and how it's going to be used because at the moment it's just a chunk of money to improve login times. We don't really know. Where it's going and how it's going to be used.
1: Yeah, and we're mid January, I mean, the NHS kind of um, spending what it is, um, this will be money that has to be spent by the end of the financial year. So there's going to be a scramble to get it out of the door as quickly as possible. So I suspect those people that have got shovel ready projects mm-hmm. or login ready to go are going to be set fair. Mm-hmm. One that we're kind of um, eagerly awaiting is an announcement on who the next um, CIO of NHS X is. Um, mm-hmm. Job is out to advert at the moment couple of interesting names um in the mix um so i think who is going to be the next um, nhs um cio replacing will smart is going to be a very interesting kind of appointment um, and it's not just that role which um nhsx is kind of currently recruiting mm-hmm. for there's any number of directors of number, I mean. various missions um out at the moment so nhsx moving into kind of actually making these types of appointments um, and for me, one of the kind of real tests is going to be, are they going to be new faces um, or are they going to be kind of um, familiar, mm-hmm. experienced hands, um, which, you know, has some merits, but would suggest much more continuity rather than some radical kind of change yeah. and new approach?
0: you heard any rumours as to who it might be? Oh, <laughs> it definitely has. <have>. Possibly.
1: Certainly, <laughs> the NHS CIO name I've um, heard is someone that um, listeners will be familiar with. Mm -hmm.
0: So that's it for this week's podcast. Don't forget to check back on our website for updates or to listen to any previous podcasts. Just click on the podcast icon at the top of our homepage. And don't forget to tune into the podcast in two weeks' time, which will be featuring some of our speakers that we've got lined up for Rewired in 2020. uh, We'll be chatting data sharing, privacy, the role of CCIOs and CIOs, startups, and much more. And if you've got any queries or suggestions for the podcast, please do get in touch. You can email me at adowney, that's D-O-W-N-E-Y at digitalhealth.net.